as we've built wildly successful charter school, one of the things we've had to overcome is this idea that people still want a traditional school experience, even if they want a different educational experience. Welcome to Education on the Rocks. I'm your host, John Bullock, and I'm joined today, as always, by my friend and colleague, George Hegarty. George, how are you doing today? I'm doing so, so well. How about you? Happy springtime. It's uh, great to be here in the spring. And we've been, uh, we took another little bit of an extended break for spring break. So we appreciate uh, the audience being patient and uh, waiting for us to get, uh, get back into the recording studio. Totally. totally. I wish I had done something really exciting so that I could tell the audience that I was on a trek or something in the Himalayas, but nope, we just took a little bit of a break. That's, it's, it's amazing, right? During the the academic year, like the need to uh, take a few days and just breathe, right? Totally. And, and I think that while um, people might not understand, uh, understand it when we talk about it, but if you've been in schools, you know that uh, time moves differently between the first day of school and Thanksgiving. And then after that, time accelerates uh, exponentially. I'm not sure I'm using those terms correctly, but uh, uh, by the time by the time this time of the year comes around, everything is just ripping through every week. It's like, oh, it's Friday already. Yeah, I, I probably inappropriately, inappropriately use the term terminal velocity, but it feels like uh, in the springtime, that's what happens, right? You're just going faster and faster. The ground is coming closer and closer. Uh, I'm cracking up. Yeah. The heat shields aren't holding. <laughs> exactly. And so uh, anyway, so it's good to get a little bit of a break, but we're happy to be back. This is the No More Math Class edition. We're excited to talk about that, and we'll share a bit more with you after the break. But uh, happy to be back with you on Education on the Rocks. We talk about uh, education issues and drink a little whiskey. So, George, what are you drinking today? I'm having a um, an old-fashioned with uh, just kind of the traditional Angostura bitters and uh, a whistle pig rye that I found that is really, really nice. It, it actually um, is a smooth, smooth-drinking rye, and in an old-fashioned, it just seems like a perfect marriage. What about you? What do you got going on? Well, that sounds great, what you're drinking there. In fact, I was thinking about this the other day. I watched the show Billions. Do you ever watch that show? I haven't. Uh, so on Billions, they were having a drink the other day, and, and uh, one of the characters asked for an old pal, which is uh, their, their slang for an old-fashioned. So, oh, nice. Uh, i got to start throwing that down when I go downtown. Let me take a note of that. That's right. So <laughs> uh, today I'm drinking uh, from a local distillery, New Basin Distilling Company here in Central Oregon. Uh, it's called a Strong American Light Whiskey. So it's... Uh, it's their own uh, version of an American light whiskey. It's aged over four years, and it's uh, it's a nice taste to it. So I got uh, got a little new base and strong going on today. Where's that? Where are they based? They're out of Madras, uh, oh. up in Jefferson County. So uh, they've been they've been uh, distilling for a few years now, and this is uh, this is one of their I think uh, primary uh, products is their their new base and strong. Yeah, I'm sensing Central Oregon pretty, you know, they have the ale trail and now they're going to probably have a whiskey trail. It's going to be a hangover weekend in the making. I I think that's where we're headed, to be honest with you. (laughs) Sweet. (laughs) Well, hey, we listen, we appreciate everybody joining us today. Uh, We come here periodically to talk about education issues. And so uh, we want to encourage you to uh, get involved with us. Feel free to 
Uh, find us on the internet at educationontherocks.com. You can download us each and every week from your favorite podcasting app. Uh, and uh, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Speaks And George? I'm at George underscore Hegarty. So uh, we invite you to uh, listen in today and uh, participate online. We'll, we will uh, ask you to take a pause, take a sip, and we'll be right back after this message. On August 6, 1991, the first website was created on the World Wide Web. Now, in 2022, there are billions of websites online. And did you know that 55% of small businesses don't even have a website? Well, at Mooney Marketing, they lift your business to the next level by designing your business an affordable, mobile-friendly website with professional business photography, video production, SEO, design concepts, and color schemes. As we venture into the next stage of the pandemic and the world, customers and consumers are still searching online for products and companies, now more than ever. This Redmond-based marketing firm also offers logo design, advertising, branding, storytelling, and social media marketing services. For more information on Mooney Marketing, check out their website at mooney-marketing.com or give them a call at 541-280-7412. Welcome back to Education on the Rocks. As we're coming out of spring break and into the home stretch of academic years across the country for students, teachers, administrators, and parents, all the way from pre-kindergarten to college, we thought it'd be a good time for a thought experiment. Since the Enlightenment in Europe in the 18th century, knowledge has become increasingly compartmentalized. In fact, in many big high schools across the country, Faculty members may not know teachers outside of their department, let alone know what those teachers in other subject areas are in fact teaching. So despite efforts to balance student workloads, we see our students often ping from their most important class of their day to the most important part of their day, which can be overwhelming, disoriented, and exhausting, even while it's inspiring. We're not sure that's the best way to prepare students for our increasingly complicated world. So today is about wondering what would happen if our education system thought about knowledge holistically as we ask the question, what if there were no more math or English or history or science classes? So George, what do you think? Are we crazy for asking about this? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure probably people want to see where this is going to go today. <laughs> um, it does seem, I mean, based on the educations that you know, everyone uh, or the vast, vast majority of our listening audience had in the educations we had, I think that, yeah, we would seem crazy to think about um, breaking down uh, the system that we've all been a part of, because that's what we've had is we've had English classes and history classes and math classes and science classes. And that's kind of how we've defined our education. So, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, it probably is a little bit crazy, but it also this might be a great time to rethink, uh, rethink how we've been doing things. Yeah, I think one of the things that struck me when we were contemplating this topic was why and how did we end up where we are? And one of the key aspects that I think transpired is as time passes, there's more and more legislation about what has to be taught in schools, both, both formal and informal legislation. Let's say that too, right? Where you have policymakers uh, deciding, hey, students need to learn X, Y, and Z, and then they add to that and add to that and add to that. And likewise, you have communities say, we need our students to know these things, and they add to that and add to that and add to that. And we reached a spot when we transitioned out of the one-room schoolhouse concept of education where things started to become more and more compartmentalized because there were... uh, 
the list of things that had to be taught grew and grew and grew. And so uh, I think one of the things I want to think about today in this, this thought experiment is how do we go about determining what we're supposed to learn and teach and how do we deliver that, right? I mean, that's, that's the issue with this compartmentalization, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and that's a great way, I think, to frame it is to say that, you know, over, you know, even our, even our times as professionals in the, um, in the education system, that the list of what has to happen has grown, you know, in terms of like the boxes that we need to check in our courses. And so I think that that kind of, that kind of issue is an interesting one because the stuff that must be taught, you know, with, with that in kind of quotations with the must, you know, um, that that is then being contrasted with maybe a question of like, what should, what should be taught? And sometimes I think that people, um, feel the pressure to check off the boxes of all the musts. And maybe we bypass thinking about our living in our current moment, like how we can kind of engage students along those lines that, curriculum gets kind of stultified, it gets locked in because of, um, just because people feel like that's what I should be doing instead of really looking at the landscape of the moment and thinking what, what would benefit my students most, what problems need solving. And I think that is a bit at the core of this dilemma that we're exploring, right, is there's all this focus on what needs to be taught what information needs to be relayed to students. And there's not as much discussion about what do we want students to be able to do with that information. And I think one of the places where we've struggled in education is truly accepting that information is no longer unavailable, right? In fact, there's more information available than anyone could ever possibly need or use. And so that that means we have to think differently about what we want students to be able to do. So let's look at a, a, real, a real example here. Uh, in schools, oftentimes, we want students to produce something on their own, right? We don't want them working in groups. We don't want them uh, using their neighbor. It's, it's your own individual thinking. And yet, we want to prepare students for today's workforce. Well, today's workforce is rooted in teamwork and collaboration, right? I mean, exactly. whether you use Slack channels or Google Docs or whatever you use, it's about working with other people. And frankly, the companies that employ people don't care whose idea it is or how it got formulated or the problem solved. They want the problem solved. And so though that's a juxtaposition of expectation for students and employees, despite a pressure for schools to prepare kids for work. Does, does that concept resonate with what we're talking about? Yeah, and I, I do think that that's, I think that's exactly what we're talking about, right? Because um, the, the idea or what I, when I'm thinking about kind of restructuring and, and rethinking education for our students, particularly in K-12, I think we've had this movement um, and we've talked about this in the past, that since really Sputnik in the middle of the 20th century, that there's this been, been a movement towards specialization and the idea that specialization is going to produce better results. And so what we've seen is this kind of, um, is that specialization has taken place 
all over in, in every aspect of our society, not only in education, in youth sports, for instance, that uh, young children and their families are being asked to choose a single sport, you know, at a very young age where, you know, a generation ago is that people kind of did whatever they wanted to up until a certain point, like kind of a, a Fed, Roger Federer example where he was playing soccer at a high level and then eventually he just had to choose tennis. It wasn't like he had, he was playing tennis exclusively since he was five. And so as you kind of lay out that like our model in the school system it isn't evolving at the at the rate of our kind of society in terms of what the expectations are for work. Collaboration plays is you know for in many many spaces in like a formal setting plays such a small role in what education looks like, and it it is incredibly vital in the workplace. And so like to me, th these are the these are ways to kind of to re envision subject. Sorry, to re envision how you teach a subject or how you teach a series of subjects is an important way to be able to allow you to break out of the model of education we've all sat through where it is like you're in your desk you're facing forward you're doing your task for the next 50 minutes and then you're doing individual homework like all that cycle i think it's time to at least question that i agree and i think we can look at some examples in the system before we do i want to i want to circle back to that youth sports comparison because i think it's a good one it it speaks to the idea that in education Everybody, at least in, in the education system in which I grew up, right, everybody should get the same thing, right? There's this uh, egalitarian view of it, right? Everybody gets, everybody gets this equal opportunity uh, process. And so we tend to think what's good for one is good for another. So youth sports is a great example. If someone wants to be a high-level performer in something, maybe they have a, 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 an acumen or a talent for it, it is important to specialize, right? I think in education, it's important we have people specializing in how to cure various cancers, right? I want a specialist, somebody who dedicates their life trying to solve that, right? And when you think about youth sports, if somebody wants to be a college athlete or pro athlete, there is a point in time where you have to specialize. But that is such a rare occurrence because most people just want to be able to play pickup soccer when they're 50, right? Like they, they're yeah. not, they just want to have fun. They want to enjoy it. And so how we meld those things, in, whether it's in youth sports or education, becomes really important because there are people who should specialize, but maybe not everybody should. Maybe that's a, a, a small number of people and we ought to have a system in which people can specialize and a system in which people can have more of a holistic view of how education works. But yeah. our struggle oh, has been to, to provide both, right? Yeah. And... And that comes down to all sorts of like funding questions and those those type of issues. But I but I think that there's there are ways to kind of have we've kind of focused on choice and student choice and family choice in terms of education. But what if those choices really were about, you know, kind of something that is very different? And we have some experience with trying to create the very different. But also we know we know what it feels like. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that of like the resistance that the community has um, even to a good idea when it is, looks so radically different um, from what they're used to? Well, it's a, it's a great question because I think I've probably said it on the pod before, and I know I say it in some of my uh, speaking engagements, that the American high school experience is one of the last unifying pieces of social fabric. Now, I would posit that the pandemic has shattered some of that 
uh, or at least freighted a bit too, uh, because people have learned, oh wait, we can get education in a different way. But that said, across the country, most public high schools operate in the exact same fashion, right? And they have uh, proms and homecomings and football games and five period days or seven period days and you go class to class to class and there's a cultural expectation about what high school should look like, right? And so even if you have an idea that is better or produces better results, you still have to overcome the social expectations of what school might look like. And so that struggle, right, of the social aspect, and I don't mean just like the friendships interaction, I mean the social impact in a community of what a school is supposed to be, makes changing it very difficult, right? And so uh, as we've built a, a, a wildly successful charter school, one of the things we've had to overcome is this idea that people still want a traditional school experience, even if they want a different educational experience. Yeah, and so it is that culture and education that that is something that, that needs to be navigated because I think that the questions that arise right around culture, we know what we would know what people want. They, they want the same types of events that they had. They want those opportunities for their students. And so we can build that. Um, I think that the other thing we run up against is um, in some of the discussions that I've had over the years is that when you use a kind of a, a less traditional model of educating students, um, the, que the question that is posed to us all the time is like, how do you know your students are learning? Um, and, and basically what that question is saying is like, why aren't you testing them more? <laughs> yes. And it also presupposes that kids are learning in the model that's in existence. Yes. Yeah. And that I think, and that's what I think is interesting is that I don't, th the, the problems that are being solved and you mentioned like a collaborative workforce, the, the reason that collaboration, collaboration isn't in place in our, in our contemporary workforce because it's the most efficient way to do something. In fact, it's not. Whenever you have, you have to have a discussion uh, amongst uh, people who have ideas and have expertise, that that is actually slowing down a process. But the reason it's there is because it produces better results. And I think so much of our kind of our education system as it stands right now, kind of the kind of main what mainstream education looks like in the United States is about like measuring progress at a particular rate. And so if students aren't aren't moving along the trajectory at this rate, they are falling behind. And we've talked about that kind of moniker being placed on on young people and how it can affect them. Um, I'm all in favor of creating learning environments where the learning is much more integrated, where it is kind of for the same reason that we're kind of talking about a collaborative model and work. It's because the problems that we're solving and the problems we're hopefully teaching our students to think about solving, it, they're very complicated and it takes multi, um, kind of a, a really a myriad of perspectives in order to even start to think through how we would address some of these issues. One, the, uh, kind, to kind of put it, out of the ethereal and, and um, the theoretical world. What I mean by that is like something as um, complicated and nuanced as climate change, you know, like how, 
how do we deal with that? It's not a one, there's not one answer and there's not one kind of area of knowledge that's going to answer all these questions. Right. And it's interesting as, as you talk through that, I think about in education, we do have spaces where there are holistic collaborative models, right? Our, that's how our elementary schools are set up, yeah. right? They're set up as individual classroom-based communities in which students receive all the various educational pieces they need, but they do it in an integrated manner, in a community-based manner, and it works and we, we like it, but then kids move into middle school and we almost immediately specialize. And I wonder why we do that. I also wonder, what if we built systems where that's how middle school and high school worked, where you were in collaborative communities of learning where it was integrated and you had people, uh, you know, so you, you develop some of these important uh, skills people need to be successful in the world and learning doesn't happen in silos. I mean, it's probably a, a, I'm certain it's a pipe dream and some people may think it's crazy, but it's not like we don't do this in education. That's my point. We do it at the elementary level. And then when a kid turns 11 or 12, we're like, well, time to specialize. Yeah. And that's, I think that that's the myth of our education system is that, you know, elementary school is the time where like you get to experiment. And then what we keep here, what you hear is all, the middle school mantra is that this is real school now. And this is, this is going to start quote unquote counting. Uh, right. And so we've created this divide that, that kind of that integrated learning model is, and the fact in many people probably who are listening know is that there are specific curricula. There's a storyline curriculum that is adopted and accepted in the elementary model um, as, as a model for learning and a way to engage students in learning. If, if I rolled into a high school classroom and said, like, we're doing storyline this year, uh, students, like the parents would, I'd get emails within two minutes because the students would be texting their parents. Right. And, and it speaks to the difficulty of, of change in the system. But another part of that is, let, let's say we could do that. Let's say we built, uh, you know, a holistic integrated learning model in middle schools and high school. What, what do you think the costs of that are? Uh, not just the financial, but what, what, are the, what are the costs to the system? What are the costs to people? And, and why would the financial cost increase, do you think? So the, the two costs that emerge when I, when I start to think through is the, the one is that the cost of measurement in that like this, this type of learning, if we're going to, if students are going to be working in an integrated model where they're working across and within subject areas all the time, that that's, that from my perspective anyway, will produce slower, but more meaningful results. And so like that notion of progress and like understanding where students are all the time, um, is that will be sacrificed. And so for the, and I think that, like you said, that the pandemic kind of has given us an opportunity to see that like, oh, you don't need to measure student progress every week or every two weeks that you can, it can stretch out. Uh, we can stretch out that timeline, but that's one cost. The other cost is thinking through um, how to allocate teacher space and time. And I think that collaborative, as I suggested earlier, is collaborative um, efforts because we'd want to have teachers teaching together from different disciplines that that's less efficient and so the model would necessarily 
from my perspective anyway, cost more um, in terms of, and that would be like thinking straight along kind of economic lines of, of money that we'd have to pay, pay people for their time uh, in ways that if you're working in a silo, um, that, that that is like you're just expected to produce. Yeah, I think those are great uh, examples of, of what the cost structure would look like. The other thing that comes to mind for me is the way in which we've built our facilities. Uh, by and large, across the country, facilities have been built so that middle school students or high school students are in groups of 25 or 30 or 35, right? The rooms are just set up that way. And uh, if you went to a holistic integrated approach, you, you might need facilities to be utilized differently, right? I mean, uh, it, it's really difficult to create an integrated academic learning environment if students have to be kind of divvied up into, into equal chunks of, of, of groups, equal cohorts, and have a specialist come in and teach them. That's the way the facilities are set up, right? So there's a cost in changing that that I think is, is difficult too uh, to try and manage. Yeah, for sure. I mean, my immediate thought there is that, wow, I, you know, high school libraries would get, or what do they call them, media centers, will get utilized at this point, you know, under this model, where we would need those spaces in ways that those are kind of, um, those spaces have become kind of graveyards on um, high school campuses. And um, yeah, and I think that those, kind of a question of space, which does of course have a cost, um, but it, it seems to me if you're breaking down walls and creating larger spaces, um, that, that, that actually is not as challenging as kind of compartmentalizing buildings and making more small spaces. But I don't, I don't know about that. It's, it is, I mean, I think that getting people to understand, and I think it would take a very specific, uh, group of instructors and kind of a first initial student population to see that like, this does happen you know, like you say, we know we know what an integrated model looks like at the um, elementary level, but it's also the same thing that's happening at the highest levels of education. So it is interesting that um, you know we kind of we run along a spectrum of like, okay, you're you're supposed to think kind of in an integrated way when you're young, and then also when you are kind of at the highest at the highest levels of education too. And so in the middle, you know, we want you specializing. Yeah, and I think it's that drive to ensure there's uh, certain skills developed and certain skills are measured and certain curricular boxes have checked, as we talked about. So let, let's move this on to uh, maybe, a, maybe a bigger picture now again, though. Like, how would changing our approach uh, to education change how we approach teaching, teaching and learning or learning and knowledge? I mean, how, you know, one of the things that, I, that strikes me is this, is that I have this this mantra that I am trying to uh, embed in in the work that I do in education is we want kids to be able to read, write, think, create, and communicate. Read, write, think, create, and communicate. And if they can do those things, they'll be able to navigate life and careers and the world successfully. So regardless of your specialized subject, that's what we need students to be able to do. But I think that that's at some level radical, right? That's, a, that's changing how we approach learning and knowledge because it doesn't, it's not easily measurable. So what are your thoughts? I mean, how, how, would, how would this change affect how we approach 
teaching and learning or learning and knowledge? Yeah, I think, I mean, one, I mean, the main, one of the main benefits I see to it is that people, um, I think too often too young in our education system is that people decide that like, oh, I'm not good at this thing. Um, and I think that deterring it, it there because of grades and particular successes or lack of successes is that people are turned off um, from subjects. But switching switching around, I think the switching the subs kind of inverting the model and allowing people to access different skills in different ways. And so, for instance, you're not taking a math class where you have geometry and you're doing 60 problems a night, that it's done in a more integrated fashion within a different curriculum. But I think that there's a real benefit to keeping students engaged. And then also, as we kind of expand and think of how this can affect us societally, is that I think that the more information that all of us have and the kind of the broader base skill sets that we've been exposed to, that, that gives us access to understanding other people's perspectives in ways that maybe you don't if we're also specialized, that you kind of live within your silo and you understand that group and that set of kind of ideals, but then you, you can't kind of um, see other people's perspectives as easily. So that's kind of my like pie in the sky, utopian vision. What, what are your thoughts on it? Well, one of the things that, struck me again as we pondered this was the beauty of the elementary school classroom is that that group of people, right, these, these children with their, their teacher leader have to form a successful society or community, right? It's, it's the only way that they can effectively navigate the year is if they all come to agreements about how they're going to interact and how they're going to treat one another and how they're going to communicate and that they all have common goals in mind. And there's so much of that that is missing in the world, right? The ability to say, okay, we are going to work together because this is how we all successfully navigate this. And I imagine a scenario where in high schools across the country, if we were able to create that, right? And I think we falsely do it through school spirit activities, right? Um, But if we really truly created learning communities in which students saw their success linked to other people's success, if they saw their abilities to thrive connected to other people's ability to thrive, that it has the potential to really be life-changing and, dare I say, world-changing. And... So for me, when I think about education reform, when I think about what is it we're really trying to do in this industry, I think we oftentimes sell ourselves short about our ability to actually change the world. I hear teachers talk all the time, and it's a motivating factor for teachers, that it's going to change the life of the student. My, my interactions are going to change the life of the student. And I think that's true. But I think we sell ourselves short to think that we could possibly create something that really did change the the shape of the world simply by rethinking how we structure our school environments. Yeah, and that's beautifully put in that end. And ultimately, I think that that's why it's worth taking a chance on this. And and I would be happy, you know, to drop a model for a school. I think you probably have about 10 in your, in your bag right now. 
but I, but I really do feel like that it's worth, um, our world is evolving. You know, we are becoming, I mean, we have been uh, a global society for a long time, but I think we're fully acknowledging that and trying to think about what our responsibilities are, not only as, you know, citizens living in the United States, but also being global citizens. What does that mean? That these, um, that I think having opportunities where students are not immediately locked into um, kind of a tradition as we've seen it, because it seems like we know what those results are going to be, um, that kind of breaking out of that would be a, a way to really um, by, revitalize education in the 21st century. Well, this has been a great conversation. We want to know what you think. You've listened to us talk for a bit about uh, what's, what might be possible if we thought about this holistic, integrated approach. We'd love to hear your thoughts. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Speaks. George? I'm at George underscore Hegarty. And we'd love to get your thoughts about it. We'd love for you to uh, share this podcast with your friends. Start a conversation with your teaching friends or your, your community friends or your family about what is possible in education if we take a moment to rethink it. Uh, follow us on the website at Education on the Rocks. Uh, you can get us on all your favorite podcasting apps. And we just appreciate the time that you take uh, to join us as we talk about education and enjoy a drink. And so uh, now that we've uh, done this, uh, we're, we're finishing up our final sips. We want to encourage you to take a pause, take a sip, and we'll be right back with a segment we like to call After the Ice Melts. Welcome back to Education on the Rocks, and now for a segment we like to call After the Ice Melts. We've taken some time and talked about some education issues. We've enjoyed our whiskey, and now it's time to figure out what's next. So, George, what are you going to do after the ice melts? So I've got a couple things going on today uh, that are kind of exciting. I'll be heading to the local farmer's market uh, as soon as we're as soon as we're off. Um, you know, this is time of year where kind of things things are being harvested already down here, which is amazing compared to living up in uh, Central Oregon for such a long time. And so I'll be going down there and getting out and about and on what is a breezy uh, a breezy day down here in Davis. And then also, I've been listening to a friend of mine uh, named Allison Moss has a podcast. Uh, it's a short one, so it's it is only a ten episode. Um, production called California's Eroding Coastline. And so I've been listening to that. It's It would be, I think, uh, a really intriguing um, listen for our audience that even if you're not a Californian, I think that the issues that uh, kind of Allison tackles on the, um, on the pod are something that's applicable to all of us who who visit any coastlines anywhere. And I know Oregon's got a really beautiful and robust coastline. And then one other thing, last night I watched, uh, and I don't know if you saw it, John, uh, Ken Branagh's film, Belfast. No, I have not seen it. I I was blown away. I was a little apprehensive to watch it because growing up in the 80s and kind of knowing that long and kind of really terrible history of the conflict in, um, the conflict in Northern Ireland, uh, I was a little bit apprehensive, but I watched it and it was so beautifully done. It was one of those rare films that seems like it was written for the stage, but then, um, but then makes it onto the big screen. It was just really, really uh, amazing. And Judy Dench, which I know people say how incredible her performances are, I was just blown away by her performance as the grandma in the piece. So 
uh, I highly recommend that if you haven't seen it yet. That's awesome. So well, some great recommendations from George. And what about you? The, what do you got going? Yeah, now to the part of the podcast where people go, how come you two are friends? Uh, because I, my, uh, my After the Ice Melts are two things, George. One, uh, baseball season started this week. And um, as you're aware, and maybe some of our listeners are aware, uh, last year I won a championship belt, a, a pro wrestling style championship belt for my fantasy baseball league. Uh, and so... I'm beginning defense of that belt this weekend. So I'm closely following statistics and uh, putting them into my algorithm and my spreadsheet so I can figure out who are the best players to play so I can keep this, uh, this championship belt. So that's, and so do you do that daily? Daily. During baseball? Daily, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's, it's probably not okay on a number of levels, but uh, doggone it, uh, I got this championship belt now, so I got to defend it. <laughs> Exactly. Sweet. So that's one thing I'm doing. Uh, I try to excuse it by saying that I use, uh, you know, analytics and spreadsheets and that it's, uh, you know, keeps my mind sharp. Uh, but it's probably just the 12 year, 12 year old, year old baseball card nerd in me. But that's, that's one thing I got going on. Uh, <laughs> you miss, you lament that box scores aren't available anymore in the morning. Yes. Paper. I, mean, I used to scan those every morning. I just I get the paper and scan them. It was, <laughs> It's, uh, yeah, so that's one thing. Uh, second thing, though, is tomorrow morning, the most important uh, yeah, Premier League game. Yeah, big game. Most important one of the season. Man City hosts Liverpool with the title on the line. And, uh, you know, Man City had a commanding lead uh, in the past couple months that has dwindled to one point. And so uh, the result in this match is a big deal. So Yeah, and it's mid, uh, mid-Champions mid League for both teams, too. So it's a very interesting. It's going to be great. And, John, the audience doesn't know you and I are on opposite sides of the coin on tomorrow's match. So. That, that's right. That's right. You, you'll, be, uh, you'll be wearing your... Uh, my red. Your red, and I'll be wearing my blue. And um, it's, it's a big match. And then the crazy thing is... Uh, a week from now, they play again in the FA Cup semifinals. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot happening uh, in, in the next uh, week or so for Man City and Liverpool fans. So uh, tomorrow morning, 8.30, uh, that's where I'll be. Uh, yeah, we have an 8.30 start, so it's not even, a, not even an alarm for me. So it'll yeah, be good. It's good. It's funny. Uh, you know, if it had been a 4.30, I'd have been up for that, obviously. Uh, to prep for my World Cup uh, regimen, which will be 2 a.m., 5 a.m., 8 a.m., 11 a.m. games for the first week of the World Cup. Ah, yes. And how much of that are you on vacation? A little bit of it, right? Well, the entire first week of the World Cup is, uh, is our fall break. So I will watch 28 games uh, before I have to return to work, and they will be at 2 a.m., 5 a.m., 8 a.m., and 11 a.m. each day. <laughs> Nothing like you resting up over the breaks. <laughs> I'm fired up for it. It's going to be great. So, and that's in November, folks. So, like that, the... I got time to prepare. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, man. Yeah. So, uh, fantasy baseball and uh, Premier League soccer. That's what's uh, after the ice melts for me. So, uh, hey, it's been a great podcast. It's been fun as always, catching up and uh, talking about the issues of the day, folks. Again, we appreciate you listening in. Please uh, like, share, uh, favorite. Uh, and if you get on to your podcast app and leave us a review, we'll take that too. But uh, we'll be back soon with more uh, education talk and more whiskey. Until then, take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to Education on the Rocks. You can connect with us on Twitter 
George is at George underscore Hegarty, and I am at Jay Bullock Speaks. If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends, and please give us a rating on iTunes and leave a comment. Until then, look for us next week as we continue to discuss education on the rocks.